0: This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Remain standing if you would. Thank you. Scott, worship team, thank you for leading us. Get your Bibles if you would. And as we continue in this Old Testament series in the book of Micah, Micah, Old Testament prophet, minor prophet there, I'm going to be reading Uh, from chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, and then it'll be on the screen here. If you're joining us us online, you can get a copy of God's Word. If you're driving, just listen, if you're joining us online while you're driving. So don't read, don't pull the book out and read it at that point. Verse 6, the prophet speaks. Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah." It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Ephra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zainan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachis. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to morsheth Gath. The houses of Achzeb shall be a deceitful thing. To the kings of Israel, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to adullam Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, For they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As I read that, you're probably thinking, this is very encouraging today. (laughs) Not only is it encouraging, it comes with the what in the world is this all about kind of phrase. While these minor prophets in the Old Testament, there on the back side of Psalms before you get to Malachi, are really good if we were to take a, a Bible study group and to spend a lot of time with maps and charts. And now some of you are going, I don't care anything about that. But I'm telling you, that's how you get into this. You get into this look at when it took place and the context of it. And I'm not gonna do all of that today, but there is so much happening here. Micah shows up. Micah, this prophet from Moresheth, shows up as God has called him from this rural area, this country boy, comes bringing the word of God. And the word that he brings is not necessarily one of uh, joy initially. Promises are often made and broken. Have you ever had someone promise you something and then break that promise? Does that ever happened to you? Isn't that, doesn't that feel great? No, it doesn't. Terrible. Then there's the other side. Have you ever made a promise and well, you didn't keep that promise. Promises are made and people break them all the time. It is it is such now that many people just don't see promises as binding at all or truthful or even expect people to stand by their word anymore. You have heard it said that there, there was a day years ago when a man's word was enough, but even now a signed contract sometimes isn't quite enough. Promises are made and expected to be broken. The joke is that uh, politicians make promises all the time. Promises they're unable to keep, promises they likely will not keep. I just did a quick Google search of broken promises by major politicians. The internet broke as soon as I typed it because it just, it just kind of, whether intentional or not, I mean, it's, it's part of it. Promises are made and promises are broken all the time to the point where many people just don't even give it much credence anymore. Probably one of the most... Impactful broken promises that some of you here have, imp- have, have experienced and many who are listening have as well, is that little promise that says something like, till death do us part and then when broken, the ramifications go and go and go. Promises made and promises broken. No wonder so many people struggle with trusting Christians. Just think about this. God loves you, I promise. Yeah. But people break promises all the time. You can trust him. He's trustworthy. Yeah, I trusted this guy and this person and this lady, and they didn't didn't pull through. How do I know God? No wonder so many struggle with trusting Christians when Christians tell them there is a God who loves them, desires to know them, has made made a way of hope, a way of life, and truly is trustworthy. In a world of empty promises and broken promises, it is very difficult to trust anybody. You may not be an amen but some of you in your head right now are going, that's the first amen I've ever amen," because you understand that, because you've been burned, you've been hurt. But uh, in this little story today, this journey that we're taking with Micah, the man from Moresheth Gath, he's coming to speak to the people of God, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, it's a divided nation at this point, and he's bringing prophecies to both, and, and by his own pedigree, by his own resume, he shouldn't even have an audience with anybody of influence. But because he was called by God, God has put him in position to that me- where that message that he speaks not only is heard by the kings and the leaders, but by those within the nations as well. You see, God doesn't necessarily, as I said last week, look at a person's uh, background to determine if they're worthy of being called. He qualifies the ones he calls. The missionaries that we showed on video today, every one of them today was behind a screen. Every one of them was behind a screen because of where they're going. It is unsafe. And every one of them behind a screen gave you a fake name. The one young lady that is behind the screen from Texas, as she said, was the young lady that Tracy and I had the honor of having dinner with at the convention this year and so this is her fake name but it is a real place that she is going with a real message and a real gospel and yet as I sat there with her I'm looking at her thinking she's she's like every young person that has grown up in our church She just had the ears to hear when God said, will you go? And Micah of Moresheth is not unlike that. Called by God to go give one of the most difficult messages to a people who could have him put to death just by speaking what he's speaking. But he goes. He goes to a disobedient people, a people that has a cloud of broken promises hovering above them. But their promises that are broken are much deeper than what it seems. See, more than simply broken promises, the people of God had forsaken their covenant with God. We don't talk a whole lot about that. In fact, we, when we use the words, we often, we often kind of mess it up. Promises and covenant, covenants are often viewed as synonyms. Even in, in evangelical church life, we'll have people, hey, we're going to make a covenant here to do X, Y, and Z. Well, you're really not. You're just making a promise because a promise and a covenant are not exactly the same thing. A promise is an assurance that one of the individuals in the agreement, one, will do something or that something will happen. I promise this will happen. I promise I will do X, Y, and Z. But a covenant is much deeper than that and shouldn't be considered just as a synonym to promise. A covenant is a formal agreement, not unlike a contract, but even deeper than that. It is a formal agreement between two or more parties where each agrees to do or not to do something that will impact the other party. Within a covenant, there is an understanding from both parties that actions will be taken. There are no passive covenants. There will be actions taken and things will be done and these covenant promises will be fulfilled. So a promise is a promise, but a covenant is relational. It is binding. It is a legally valid contract between two individuals. And it should not be dumbed down to be simply a minuscule agreement or easily ignored or breakable promise among individuals. The people of God in Micah's day had forsaken their end of the covenant. They were in covenant relationship with God. And they had forsaken their end They had slid into a routine where God was viewed more as a good luck charm or that big guy in the sky kind of theology that many people have, and that's not reserved to people that lived thousands of years ago on the other side of the planet, but that happens even here. God, this big guy in the sky philosophy, that's how they viewed him. He was kind of like a good luck charm. I mean, they didn't have a whole lot to do with God unless they, I don't know, needed some rain or needed bad guys not to attack them or they, I don't know, having a fight with their spouse, needed God to fix that or their kids were being jerks and they needed God to fix that. You know, it was the God of convenience that I will go to when things aren't going the way I think they ought to go. That doesn't just sound like historical religion, does it? That's what had happened. And while they knew that this God that they were to worship had rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt many years prior, had brought them across the Red Sea, had brought them across the Jordan, had put them in this land of promise, had given them everything and all that they needed, and protected them over the centuries, they didn't think much about it. In fact, he became little more than a symbol to many of them. I mean, I don't know if they put little plastic fish on the back of their donkeys, but it was symbolic God rather than real God. So shockingly, they likely, if you can imagine, they're doing life, just everyday life, kind of going through the motions, and they likely thought everything was okay because the way they were dealing with God and the way they were dealing with religion and the way they were thinking about God and his power and his person was not unlike the, exact, the way their parents did. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So their parents acted the same way and their grandparents acted the same way. So you have generation after generation after generation of slow drift away from personal relationship with God and worshiping him fully and truly you know, and, it, and, and it's been said, you know, the, the generation, you know, I grew up in the generation where um, my parents, they took us to church every time the doors were open. I mean, so in standard Baptist time, that would be Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. Well, the schedules have shifted over the years. And some people lament, well, the church needs to do more stuff at the church. I want to just tell you this, we can open the doors all we want to, but if nobody's coming, the people have already voted. One generation goes four times a week. It's easily noticed that the next generation goes twice a week. To, wow, where are we now in American Christianity? One time a month is a regular attender. 12 hours a year. We did 12 hours in three weeks when I was a kid. Not that that made us any more holy. It made us a little more legalistic, to be honest. And it really wore us out. But things have changed over time. And I don't want us to fall in love with the schedule, but I do think we need to fall back in love with the God who is redeeming us and has redeemed us. So in this story, generation after generation of God being known, but ah, not that special. God sends a man. And the man he sends is a man named Micah. And he's not the only one. There are others that come along. You can see that in the Old Testament. But Micah shows up to be the mouthpiece of God at this juncture. And this prophet who wrote just a short little book but ministered for 30 years, meaning this, that everything we read here he said over and over again for 30 years. A prophet who would give two messages over and over and over. Two messages in his short, blunt, clear word of warning. He would speak of gloom and glory. He would speak of grief and grandeur. He would speak of misery and majesty, of sorrow and splendor, of terror and triumph. And ultimately, he would speak of judgment and joy. And at first glance, when you read through the book of Micah and you kind of make up and figure out what he's talking about and all these locations and what this represents and this, that, and the other, you begin to see the judgment very loudly and clearly there. But if you look again, you will notice that the loving God who sent him to tell his people that he is not going to continue to ignore their sin, that they need to repent and get their lives right with him, you also see Micah declaring how joyous and how glorifying and how amazing. amazing God is that he would even want to continue a relationship with these people. You see, God initiated this covenant with his people. God is the one that said, I will make a covenant with my people, but the covenant made requires a response. The covenant made, there are numerous ones, but the one here we're looking at is the one made on Mount Sinai that you and I know most likely as the giving of the Ten Commandments. Israel had agreed to the covenant God set the terms. Commandment one, commandment two, commandment three, and so on. Both parties had obligations. What was God's stated obligation to his people? He would protect Israel from their enemies and provide for their physical and spiritual needs. And he did, never failing. Now, they may have run away and had difficulty, but it wasn't God who abandoned This is a huge promise from God, taking responsibility for his people's well being. God's promise included, his covenant included land, houses, animals, financial provision, and a name. The people's response was apparently too big a deal for them to follow through on. They were expected to be loyal and obedient. That's it. To be loyal and obedient. In the New Testament, even Christ affirmed this covenant between God and his people, and he brought it into the new covenant, identifying key elements that we as Christians today are to keep. Look in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Quoting the Shema from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. He didn't make up new stuff. He went back to the law. He went back to the teaching. He went back to that which they already knew. And he said, This is the greatest commandment. The first and greatest, it says. And then in verse 39, it says, and there's a second that is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. So you get that, right? This is not new news. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets Christ's affirmation of the central teaching. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all that you are heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19, love one's neighbor as themselves the motive behind every act of loyalty is love you can't be loyal to God if you don't love God you can't be loyal to another person if you don't love that person you can be a friend you can be on their side you can be on their team but loyalty is deeper than that and God's love for his people shows how important we are to him the people must love God To show their loyalty to him and their obedience to him. Love and loyalty to God requires that we do two things. That means we must be obedient and surrender to him as Lord. This is not new news. It's just as in the Old Testament Israelites. It's forgotten truth. Obedience. Well, obedient to what? To every single thing he says. Not to the things that fit into our comfortable lives. But everything he has commanded. And surrender, what what does that mean? It means God is not your co-pilot. It means that he is not asking your opinion on what ought to happen. He does not care about yours or my theology of ought to when he says, I am the Lord, and he has called us to total surrender. We don't like surrender. Surrender is one of those where it means we've given up, and that's exactly what it means. There is no independence for Christians, for it is total dependence on him. The call of God through Micah was precipitated by an abandonment of the covenant on the people's part. The failure of the people to remain loyal, to remain faithful, to remain honest, to remain obedient to the one true God who had and was providing for his children as he had promised and made covenant that he would in the midst of a sinful, evil, broken-down world. That's what God has done. It is in Micah 1, 7, we see clearly why God will bring judgment upon his people. It's not because God is unfair. It's not because he is unloving. It's not because he is unpredictable. But it is because he is loving and he is caring and he is protecting. John Calvin stated it well, speaking of the predictable nature of man. In his Institutes, he writes this, Man's nature, man's heart, so to speak, is a factory of idols, a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods and deed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. I think Calvin had it spot on right there. The mind, the heart, is a perpetual factory of idols brothers and sisters, it's time to shut down that factory. That factory is within us and it continues to well up and produce goods. Little idols that keep our eyes off of God. Little things that draw our focus from that which we should be focusing on. Other things that allow the covenant to be broken on our end. This is the natural inclination of the heart and mind of man. You don't have to plan to allow this. It will happen. It is already happening. But when religion and relationship become routine, this is always the result. When the stuff of life busies us to the place where faithfulness is compartmentalized To when we have the time, I will do what God wants me to do when I get to a certain point in my career, when I make a certain amount of money, when my kids get to a certain age, when they graduate from college, when they get married, when they have kids, when the grandkids get out of college, and all of a sudden you have pushed back on your own personal timeline, your well-intentioned desire to be faithful, to go all in with God until everything that interrupts your story keeps you from doing so. And this is the nature of man, the perpetual factory of idols that we have. When the stuff of life makes us so busy to the place, our faithfulness is compartmentalized to when I have time. This is the result. When me time is greater than the time, I'll go old English just to make it rhyme. The idols roll down the assembly line in our minds and our hearts. And these idols take many forms. I mean, they do. It's not just like little, little Buddha idols. It's not like little statues. It's not even the new car or the Tesla or the house. or the, It could be something God loves dearly, like your spouse or your kids or your grandkids. But that first commandment reminded us that there is only one God. And even those good blessings he's given us do not have permission, nor do we have permission to put them in place of the one true God. You see, when the judgment came upon the people of God that Micah brought, it was not something that happened like, oh my gosh, it happened on Friday, we're going to get them on Saturday. This is decades and generational sin that just keeps being justified. Hey, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but just just think about it. Does anybody here know someone in your life that you know is either lost or not walking with the Lord, but you've justified how they behave because your love for them is so great that you're trying to convince yourself that they're okay? Yeah, but, but, who are you, who are you, to, I'm not judging, I'm just telling you, the heart and the mind of every human being that is breathing is an idle factory. And God calls a man named Micah to tell the people then, and he called other Nahum and Amos and Obadiah and all these other prophets to say the same thing. And then Christ comes and then Paul comes and then here we are saying the same thing. Pastor, you don't understand. Oh, I understand completely. Let me just promise you that just because one is called a pastor and says yes to that calling and they're a missionary or a pastor and they have that great honor to under-shepherd the flock does not mean the nature of the heart is erased at that moment, but it is perpetual battle within. Left to our own devices, to our own philosophy of life, to our own cultural understanding of how things ought to be, idols will continue to be manufactured in our hearts. And I think part of the issue and I've I've thought about this for years, is that somehow in our culture, we have affirmed commodity Christianity. You know, a commodity, something you can, you know, it's like 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 if you if you go to church enough, then then good things will happen to you, not bad things, because Christianity is a commodity and you're kind of doing a, a business exchange, right? It, it's kind of like faith is something you can put in your pocket, and I got more faith today, so I'm doing okay. And Christianity becomes this commodity that when when we're running low on a little bit of good feeling in our life, we'll we'll get back into the church and kind of get some more of that commodity of Christianity, but we're not. Uh, <laughs> That's not Christianity. That's the Industrial Revolution's version of Christianity that has a, an assembly line that, that just keeps putting out these items. And they're good. They can be good. it be another Bible study, another service, another worship song. I mean, those are good. But all those things apart from Christ, it's just Jesus junk because it's not authentic. God's message to his people through Micah was one of despair. Micah said, I, you should despair when I tell you this. But then he pauses and says, but it's also a message of deliverance. And that is the gospel, even in the Old Testament. God will not be mocked. Yes, we're under a new covenant. But the new covenant did not abolish the old. It fulfilled the old. Have no other gods before the one triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the command. May we shut down the idol factory and live in obedience and total surrender to who God has called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that as we gather as your church in this place today, as we celebrate all that you have done, through the singing of worship songs and praise tunes to you, words on lyrics that, that affirm feelings in our own heart, but more than feelings, a statement of faith and a statement of belief. May we be men and women women who um, as your children are living obediently to the new covenant that you have given us through Christ himself, the good news, the gospel. And Father, may we figure out, at least at this point, how to abandon any version of idol factory and commodified Christianity that wells up within us. To be men and women of faith. To worship you in spirit and truth. To know you as you desire us to know you. Father, there are many in this room today who are your children, and we are so thankful for that because we acknowledge the reality that none of us deserve it. You invited us to join into your family through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid for the sins that we had committed and were committing and will commit, and you you have done that because of your great love for us. And Father, may we not be like the Old Testament followers of yours who after generations and after routine and after weeks and months and years of... Same old, same old, allow our relationship to be something we don't think about until we decide if we're going to come to church on a Sunday. May we be on mission all the time, totally surrendered. With those two things you've asked of us, loyalty and obedience. For the ones in the room today who are not your children, those who have never surrendered their lives to you, those who have never said yes to you, though you've called them and you have shown them and you have drawn them and even aren't doing so today, Holy Spirit, draw them to the Father through the Son. May this be the day of salvation for those. Maybe they're in the room, maybe they're watching online, wherever they are, God, let it be this feeling of uh, not a coincidence that they're here, but a divine appointment. And for the believers in the room and those that are watching who are your children, those of us who are Christians and maybe have been Christians for many, many years, may we never fall into the trap of just going through the motions. Help us, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit to shut down the idol factory within our own hearts and minds and never start it up again. I pray that's in Jesus' name. You lead us. In-